The scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 8 through 20. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him if he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creatures tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. It's a great song of the comfort and hope and the sure uh, confession of hope that we have before the Lord, that there is a, a priest who is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God right now. So, Go ahead and find your Bibles. Make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the text will be on the screen behind me at different points through the sermon as well, uh, but that you can find that in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, once you get to Psalms, which is right about the middle of the Bible, just keep going, Proverbs, and then you'll find Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter 10. If you travel to Westgate Church from the south, then you are familiar with the little road dance called Dodge the Potholes on Winter Street. Now, thankfully, Natick recently got their act together and repaved uh, their portion. Uh, hopefully, Weston will do the same soon, but it was nothing short of dramatic to be cruising down Winter Street in the rain, you know, trying to swerve and miss the potholes and not hit a tree or the car or something else uh, or run your suspension into the ground or lose a muffler or something like that. There's a reason that scripture often uses roads and paths as an analogy of life. You never know what's around the corner or over the hill. You have to watch out for potholes or other road hazards. Sometimes you hit a dead end, you have to take a detour and so on. It's a real rich metaphor for life. One that reminds us of the necessity of living with our eyes wide open paying attention to the path in front of us. In other words, living wisely. Living wisely. Only a fool would cruise down Winter Street at 30 miles an hour with their eyes closed 
or, or with their eyes on something other than the road right in front of them. So it is that godly wisdom opens our eyes to walk faithfully with God on what is often an uneven path of life in front of us. Our passage this morning is a continuation of uh, what we looked at last week in chapter 9, verses 11 through chapter 10, verse 7, and what true success looks like in an upside-down world, in a world that doesn't always work the way it should, a world where... Uh, you know, that doesn't ultimately satisfy and that doesn't always value the same things that God values. Unlike how the wisdom of this world defines success in terms of money or power or achievement or prestige and so on, we saw last week how the wisdom of God tells us that true success is faithfulness to God. It's faithfulness to God and His purposes. It's fearing God. Uh, treating him with the respect and the reverence that he deserves as the creator, as the king and the savior of this world. And walking faithfully with God in an upside down world requires wisdom, which is not just knowledge or information. Sometimes we talk about wisdom and we think, well, I just need to learn more facts. Wisdom in scripture is not just knowledge. It's knowing how to apply that knowledge to life. So wisdom is skill for living. It's skill for living. And our passage this morning is going to highlight four general dangers, four car-eating potholes, if you will, for life that wisdom is going to give us uh, the skill to avoid um, as we try and navigate this world uh, in faithfulness to God and His purposes. So please pray with me, and we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 10 together. Lord, we do thank you that you are the God who is our vision. You are the God who intercedes for us. You are the God who gives us the wisdom we need to walk in faithfulness to you. You've not just created this world. You've not just had a vision in mind for your people, a desire, instruction, commands, but you've made them known to us through your word, through your son, and you've given us your spirit to walk with you. God, may we not take that for granted. May we, as we look into your word, see you more clearly, and may our hearts be changed to walk faithfully with you through the grace we have in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we've learned a lot from the book of Ecclesiastes so far. We've been going through this book for a few months, and one of the things that it's shown us is that wisdom is limited. Wisdom is limited. It cannot answer every problem every trial, every danger in life. And we're told elsewhere in this book that both the wise and the foolish face the same destination under the sun, the grave. Uh, We're told that in the meantime, sometimes the fools have all the fun and all the money, while the wise end up spending their time suffering. So wisdom is limited in this world. But just because it's not a silver bullet for avoiding all of life's problems does not mean that we should ignore it or even worse, plunge headlong into folly and foolishness. There is a serious eternal danger in what the Bible calls foolishness. And the wisdom can't protect us from all suffering. It can keep us close to God in the midst of it. Now, just as as bumps in the road can be a bit random... So uh, some of the preacher's instructions in this chapter feel a bit random. 
as he's addressing different scenarios that life gives us. But we can, again, identify, I think, four general problems and hazards that we run into, uh, dangers that he warns us against, along with how godly wisdom helps us keep our eyes on the path in front of us so as to avoid uh, those dangers and walk faithfully with the Lord. And the first hazard that he points out is the danger of robbing others in verse 8. The danger of robbing others, which comes from taking our eyes off of the path and fixing our eyes on what others have that we want. On what others have that we want. Look with me at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, some take this verse um, to refer to honest laborers going about their business and getting hurt accidentally, not unlike what we're going to see in verse 9 in a minute. And it might refer to that, but this imagery of digging a pit and falling into it elsewhere in Scripture is almost always a picture of poetic justice for someone who's trying to take advantage of or rob someone else. So either they're digging a pit in the road and covering it over with something so that an innocent passerby will fall into it, they can rob them. But in the process, they fall into it and get caught themselves, such as we see in Psalm chapter 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So it's that picture of poetic justice. Uh, the second image in Ecclesiastes 10.8 is similar. The breaking through a wall is breaking and entering. They're digging a hole through the wall so as to break in. But in the process, they come upon the home of a snake in the wall and they get bit. So their, their evil comes back upon them. It is utterly foolish and dangerous to think that we can take advantage of others and not have our folly come back on our heads. That's the picture here. Now, I would venture to guess that most of us are not sitting here right now plotting burglary or armed robbery of some sort. But that doesn't mean that we don't face the same temptation to take advantage of someone else for the sake of selfish gain. To rob them, maybe not at gunpoint, but to steal something that rightfully belongs to them in order to make ourselves feel better or in some way gain. We may not have the skills of a burglar, but we have the heart of one. Every single one of us. From the seemingly insignificant ways we get what we want without paying for it. You know, maybe it's pirating DVDs or illegally downloading music. You know, who's going to know? Uh, to cheating others out of money. You know, padding our, our business expenses. Cheating on our taxes. Um, to, you know sabotaging, flat-out sabotaging someone else's career or, or job, you know, in order to get the promotion you want or, or to land that client or that account. We want things, and we want them so badly that for a moment we're willing to disregard God and destroy the lives of others in order to get them. That's the heart that, that's on display here. And this is deadly and foolish. And the stupidest part of it is thinking that we'll never get caught, that we will never face justice either on earth or later in heaven. This kind of foolishness reflects a very small view of God. 
very small view of God. It's a small view of God's goodness. So that he's not really the kind of God who would provide for his people, and so I need to take what I want instead. It's a small view of God's holiness, that he's really not that set apart and perfect. So it's not really that big a deal if I sin or break his commands. It's a small view of God's power, that even if he is good enough, that that he's not really able to provide, or even if he is that holy, he's not strong enough to actually bring me to justice. And it reflects a tiny view of God's mercy, that he hasn't really done anything to, to help me in my needy estate or to deal with my problems, let alone my rebellion against him. It's a small view of God. And that kind of small view creates big problems when we do come to the place when we meet him face to face. Think of a, a small taste of that in Lewis's Prince Caspian when Trumpkin the Dwarf spends the entire book not, not only denying Aslan's power, but that, the, that he even exists. And then he finally meets this lion face to face. It's going to be big problems if we take this small view of God and then we meet a big God in the end. But if wisdom, if the wisdom that Ecclesiastes is talking about begins with the fear of the Lord, with recognizing he's God and I'm not, then wisdom points us to the bigness of God. So it reminds us of the magnitude of God's goodness and holiness, how the God who rules from heaven and owns the entire earth is uniquely worthy of our trust and obedience because he can meet our needs and he deserves our worship more than anything else. It points us to God's power to accomplish his purposes, to provide and to protect, to rescue and to judge. And it moves us to depend on his mercy, which he demonstrated by sending his son to take the just punishment that we deserve for our greedy hearts on himself on the cross in our place so that through trusting him, we might receive full pardon, full pardon and adoption into his family by grace through faith. Our hearts want things and we want them now. The wisdom of God reminds us that he is the giver of all good things and that he's given us the best possible thing he can give us in Jesus. So the first hazard is the danger of robbing others. The second hazard is the danger of rushing into a task without weighing the potential for harm. Or in a single word, carelessness. The danger of carelessness which comes from taking our eyes off of the path and fixing them so narrowly on the prize that we can't see the obstacle right underneath our nose. and We trip over it. So this uh, comes in verses 9 through 11. Look at those verses with me. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. Now we have in these verses um, three examples of tasks or occupations uh, from the ancient world. And of course, 
that are still going on in the world today. Quarrying stones, so you know, harvesting stones out of the earth, splitting logs, and charming snakes. And each one of these tasks, tasks involves a certain level of risk or danger. So the picture here is someone jumping into a task carelessly, you know, needlessly injuring themselves or making the work harder than it needs to be. As we see in verse 10, you know, if the iron's blunt and one doesn't sharpen the edge, he has to use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. You know, a little wisdom goes a long way in accomplishing the things God gives us to do. Sometimes that means slowing down, taking the time to sharpen the axe uh, before chopping the wood, putting on the bicycle helmet before going for a ride, you know, checking to make sure the safety is on on the table saw before you stick your hand in front of the blade and grab that piece of wood. Sometimes it means hurrying up, like you know, charming a snake. Doesn't do any good if the snake bites before you charm it. You need to get on the ball with that one. Or, you know, uh, you know, receiving word of a dying parent. If you delay and don't hop on the plane right now, you might miss your opportunity to see them. So the wise person will approach their task with the careful thought necessary to accomplish it. Now, in a lot of ways, this is simply common sense. Uh, you know, it doesn't take divine wisdom to know that it's a good idea to check for traffic before you step into the street. Um, but it raises the question, why is it so hard for us to listen to common sense sometimes? You know, why, why does it seem not to be that common? You know, what is it that causes us to jump carelessly into certain tasks uh, if, if we should clearly know better? Well, sometimes it's because we're so excited about the prize or so greedy for the results of our task that we go at it without counting the cost. So building an addition on the house and finding out halfway through that you've run out of money and the bank won't increase the loan. That could have been avoided with a little research up front. Or firing off an email in our anger and destroying a relationship with it when 30 seconds of careful reflection could have seen that one coming. Sometimes it's the pride that comes with experience. You know, well, I've done this a hundred times before. I don't need to think about what I'm doing. You know, I've, I've driven this route to work a thousand times. I've never seen that stop sign before. That kind of stuff. Sometimes it's the pride that comes from presuming that we know what we're doing. How many dads in this room have started, you know, the day after Christmas, started some elaborate toy assembly for your child by setting aside the instructions. You know, watch this, son. This is how it's done. You know, three hours later, we're Googling how to undo what we did wrong so we can get the thing done. You know, this kind of presumption gets us into trouble, uh, causes a lot more work than necessary. As verse 15 puts it later, you know, the toil of a fool wearies him, gets worn out on simple tasks like just trying to find his way into the city. Even though what we need here is simply a little common sense, we need the grace of God to open our eyes to that need, to see our pride, to see our stubbornness, to see our inherent foolishness, to take our eyes off of ourselves or off of whatever else is distracting us and to fix them again on God and his purposes his character, his virtue, that we might walk with faithfulness and careful patience 
in the things he's given us to do. We see the third road hazard in verses 12 to 14. And that's the danger of running our mouths in foolishness and arrogance. The danger of running our mouths, which is, you know, like trying to navigate a dangerous path while staring at your own reflection in a mirror. So this one gets interesting. Look at, uh, look at these verses with me. Verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. So first, we notice here the obvious benefit of speaking wise words. They either win favor or perhaps even they give grace, depending on how we translate that line. And we'll talk more about wise words in a minute. But the emphasis here on these verses is foolish speech. Foolish speech. The danger of running our mouths, what my 10th grade biology teacher used to call verbal diarrhea. You know, that's the... You know, running our mouths, which in this passage is self-destructive, evil, and arrogant. Self-destructive, evil, and arrogant. Look at the imagery of verse 12. The lips of a fool consume him. Think about that picture. As the fool's flapping his mouth, going on and on in his arrogance and evil, he's in the process of eating his own body. He's consuming himself. He's burying himself, making his own grave. The picture of self-destruction. You know, how often do our words get us into trouble? You know, uh, the more we talk, the deeper the hole seems to, to be. Now, sometimes we don't intend for people to hear our complaining or our foolish words or our, our criticism. We try and keep it to ourselves and whatnot, but, you know, somehow, they, they tend to catch wind of it. You know, it's like a little birdie tells them, as in verse 20. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Now, I find it incredibly ironic that the social medium Twitter has been the cause of personal and professional ruin for so many people. You know, we think we're just kind of airing our grievances or tweeting personally, you know. Uh, but politicians, Olympic athletes, all kinds of employees have lost their jobs due to things they've tweeted about. You know, this little blue birdie causing a whole lot of problem. A word to the wise. Never post anything on Facebook or Twitter that you're not okay with the entire world reading. Because they can That little birdie has wings, and it will fly. But foolish speech is not only self-destructive, it's also destructive to others as well. It's not just self-destructive, it's evil. It's harmful. They begin with foolish, and they end in evil madness, as verse uh, 13 puts it. Our words have the power to cause incredible harm. Incredible harm. The book of James warns us that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. No one is immune from deadly and destructive speech. Uh, Paul Tripp, an author and, and, and speaker, offers what I think is a helpful diagnostic for us to, to just wrap our heads around and stop for a minute to think about how what effect does our have speech. If we just think about um, this for a minute, he writes, listen to the talk that goes on in your home. How much of it is impatient and unkind? How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easily do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How do we fail to communicate hope? How do we fail to protect? How often do our words carry threats that we've had it and are about to quit? Stop and listen. And you will see how much we need to hold our talk to a standard of love and how often the truth we profess to speak has been distorted by sin. No one is immune from deadly and damaging sin. And if we had a microphone in our homes that could just play back the day, we'd see how prone we are to this kind of speech. Foolish talk is evil. It brings harm to others. But moreover, it is plentiful. Fools love to hear their own voices, especially when they have no clue what they're talking about. Now, if you've ever been at a party, and every time somebody tells a story or, or uh, you know, shares their thoughts on something, there's that one guy who can always one-up it. You know, well, that's nothing. Wait till you hear this one. Or actually... And the longer he goes on doing that, the more convinced you are he has no clue what he's talking about. Yeah, that's what verse 14 is, is talking about. Don't be that guy. You know, A fool multiplies his words, though he has no clue you know, what is to be. This is pride and arrogance. That's what fuels that kind of verbal diarrhea. You know, it's pride and arrogance, thinking more highly of ourselves than others and more highly of ourselves than God. It's like being so in love with ourselves that as we're driving down Winter Street, we can't take our eyes off our own image in the rearview mirror. You know, that's not going to end well, okay? That's the picture. So what do wise words look like then? If words are so prone to, to doing damage, what do wise words look like? Well, again, like all wisdom, they begin with God. They begin with God, with his character, his purposes, and more specifically, with what he's done to rescue us and change our hearts through the gospel of his son. Words always flow from the heart. What comes out is what's inside. Wise words flow from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so as we receive new life through faith in Christ, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we're able to speak life-giving words to others rather than damaging words that tear others down. 
You know, it's easy when our eyes are on ourselves to point out the wrongs that we see in others. When was the last time that you reminded a brother or sister who they are in Jesus? You know, that they are a child of God. That their greatest need in Christ has been satisfied. That they are cleansed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That they stand before God completely pardoned, fully accepted, and utterly loved. When's the last time you reminded somebody of that truth? Parents, when's the last time you reminded your children that you are always going to love them no matter what they do, just as God in Christ loves us in that same way? Children, when's the last time you thanked your parents for what they've done for how they have been a reflection of your heavenly Father's protection and love and provision, even when it doesn't make sense to you. Do we use our words to speak life? Foolish speech is a deadly obstacle, but the gospel of Jesus gives us the wisdom to avoid that hazard as we become increasingly satisfied in Jesus. We are free to use our words, not not to manipulate others to make much of ourselves, but to point others to Jesus that they might enjoy and be satisfied in him and make much of God through him. Wise speech is fueled by the gospel. So we've seen the danger of, of robbing others. We've seen the danger of rushing carelessly into tasks or running our mouths. Uh, Finally, verses 16 to 19 shows us the danger of revelry and laziness, of making all of life a party, which is like driving down Winter Street with your eyes fixed on the bottom of the glass. That one doesn't end well either. So let's look at verses 16 through 19 together. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens the heart and money answers everything. Now, we see in these verses the foolishness of irresponsibility and self-indulgence. The foolishness of irresponsibility and self-indulgence. Treating life like one big meaningless party. Which is particularly problematic when those who are in leadership uh, at the top level do this. Uh, Phil Riken notes one example from European history. Charles XII, who became king of Sweden when he was only a teenager. The wild behavior of Charles and his friends included riding on horseback through his grandmother's apartment, knocking people to the ground in the streets, and practicing firearms by shooting out the windows of the palace. In response, the leading preachers of Stockholm all agreed to preach from Ecclesiastes 10.16 on the same Sunday, pronouncing woe on the land with a child for a king and princes that feast in the morning. But kings are not the only ones prone to this kind of self-centered carelessness, you know. When life 
is nothing more than a party, we find ourselves spending so much energy on being entertained that we have nothing left for the things that we're actually supposed to do. You know, it's hard to get out of bed and go to work with a hangover or after you've been, you know, playing video games or watching YouTube videos all night long. You know, with, with revelry comes laziness. The two go hand in hand. The kind of laziness that puts off important things like fixing the roof until eventually it just falls in on you, as in verse 18. All the while justifying our self-centered behavior with the motto of verse 19, which I think the preacher says here satirically. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. That's the motto of the, of the party uh, animal. Again, this comes from a very small view of God. Very small view of God. And an extremely inflated view of self. You know, maybe not so much caring what others think of you, but caring only about doing what you want and having fun. And like all foolishness, it's deadly to try and walk through life with your eyes constantly fixed on the bottom of the beer glass. And that's all you see. But the saddest part of this picture is not the inherent danger, but the wasted life. The wasted life. You are meant for so much more than that. God did not create you and give you life in vain. He didn't send his son to rescue you in vain. God made us and redeemed us for a purpose, for his purposes, which are so much grander, so much more satisfying, and so longer lasting than any of the small purposes that we can come up with for ourselves. You were created in the image of God to know him as a child knows a loving father. You were created in the image of God to serve him as loyal subjects serve a just, righteous, loving king. You were made to know and enjoy God forever, to delight in him and be satisfied in him in a way that nothing else on earth under the sun can satisfy. You were created to to spread God's glory and make his name known to the ends of the earth. And even though in our sin and foolishness and our rebellion we forfeited that privilege and those responsibilities, God sent his son Jesus to redeem us and buy us back for what we were made to do, to know, love, enjoy, and serve God for the sake of his name. We were made for so much more than this shallow portrait that our our beer commercials give us. We have a responsibility before God, not to make it up to him or perform for him, but to live each day by his grace in the power of his spirit for his purposes. And to handle what's been entrusted to us, whether it's food or family or work or friendship, in accordance with the purposes that he made them for, to make much of his name to the ends of the earth. The problem in these verses is not with feasting or wine or celebration. Those are all good things. You know, in fact, in Ecclesiastes, he has commended every single one of them so far in their proper place. 
The problem is using these good things in an irresponsible way, using them for our own self-focused purposes instead of God's, what he intended them for. Bread was not made for laughter. We see in verse 17, it was made for strength. You know, wine was made for celebration, not drunkenness. And the wise, responsible king or person will use these things according to their God-given purpose. Living with wisdom opens our eyes to see the path in front of us, not just to avoid the hazards of life, but to make the most of our lives for God. Living with wisdom keeps our eyes fixed on the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that we remember and that we celebrate with the Lord's table this morning. Now this meal that we are about to uh, partake of, enjoy, celebrate, uh, is somewhat ironically a meal for fools. So it's a meal for fools who have turned their backs on God, who have taken advantage of others, who have thought too highly of themselves, who've used their words as weapons, and who have wasted what God has given them. It's a meal for fools like you and me. But it's a meal for a certain kind of fool, one who acknowledges his foolishness over against God's wisdom and who sees and confesses that foolishness and his utter need for Jesus because of it. That's who this meal is for. Scripture says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So this table is a celebration of the gospel of Jesus. That God has not left us in our foolishness, in our rebellion, but that he sent his son to live a wise, faithful life on our behalf, to lay down his life, to give his body for us, to be broken on the cross, which is what the bread points us to to shed his blood for us, which is poured out for us on the cross. That's what the cup points us to. God gave Christ for us that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made new and restored to right relationship with God and the joyful, wise service of God in his name by his grace. So that's what we celebrate. If Jesus is your hope, if you have placed your faith personally in Christ, then I invite you to join in this celebration with us in the Lord's table this morning. If you are not a Christian and or you're not quite sure what that means, I encourage you just to let the elements pass this morning. And instead of taking the sign, take hold of Christ to whom they point by faith and taste the freedom and wisdom that God gives to those who will fall upon him. So please pray with me as the ushers come forward.
Lord, we would be so lost without you sending your son. We would be that fool stuck in the country, wearing himself out, trying to find his way to the city, going in the complete opposite direction. Lord, thank you that Jesus came to be our wisdom and to give us wisdom, to give your cross as our navigation point, that we would know what it looks like to walk faithfully with you in this fallen world. And thank you, Lord, that that grace is new and available and sufficient every morning. That as much as we continue on in foolishness and fall down and make stupid mistakes, that your grace is sufficient, that your spirit is there to pick us back up and to continue to change our hearts and guide us as we live for you. So God, may we rejoice and be nourished by your grace, by your spirit this morning as we celebrate this table. May you be honored and may you change our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen.